podcast. My name is Kim, and did you know that the first detective mystery story was actually written by Edgar Allan Poe and that it was inspired by true events? That's right, in 1841, there was a murder in New York City that captured the fascination of the public and Poe alike. This is the story of Mary Rogers. But first, a Victorian society tale. Tonight's tip is how to celebrate the New Year's like a Victorian. Now, the Victorians will use any excuse to be spooky, so one popular tradition for New Year's Eve parties were known as phantom balls. Guests would dress up in ghostly costumes and partake in a bit of divination, such as reading tea leaves, in an effort to see what the year ahead held. When the clock struck 12 on New Year's Eve, partygoers would rush to the front door, fling it wide open, and yell welcome to the new year. Then it was customary for the head of the household to throw a cake against the front door to ensure a year without hunger. They're already wasting a whole cake, so I don't understand this one, but sounds like a hell of a party, right? Also, the first person who crossed the threshold into the home after midnight would set the tone for the whole rest of the year. So it was important for it to be someone who was considered lucky and trustworthy. Bonus points if they brought a gift and if they were a dark-haired man. If it was a blonde man, though, that was unlucky, so send them around to the servant's entrance or something. It was important to clean out all the fireplace hearths in the house on New Year's Eve, as this was symbolic of sweeping away anything undesirable from the past year and starting with a clean slate. Now the next morning, upper-class Victorian men would spend New Year's Day going from house to house visiting with the eligible bachelorettes. They would spend 15 minutes or so visiting before moving on to the next home. It was the Victorian version of speed dating, you could say. It was also important to always wear a brand new set of clothes on New Year's Day to symbolize a fresh start. And additionally, it was important to go around with a bit of money in your pocket all day to ensure wealth in the following year. I hope everyone has a safe, happy, and healthy new year. Quickly before we get into the story tonight, I have a new Patreon to welcome. A warm Victorian welcome to Tim from Black Cat Lounge. Tim joined at the Housekeeper and Butler tier, so he now has access to all of the bonus content I release with each episode. He also gets the shout-out, an official Goodnight for a Murder sticker, and a handwritten Victorian-inspired thank-you postcard from me. There are two other lower Patreon tiers, and if you want to learn more about them, you can go to my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. Any support given will go towards upgrading tech gear, which makes a better listening experience for you. Plus, it helps with all the associated hosting and storage feeds for the podcast. As I've mentioned before, I am a one-woman show. I have no ads on the show. I do all the research, recording, editing, blog, social media, and everything else. And if you're enjoying the podcast and want to give back a little, Patreon is a great way to do that. If you're not into a monthly donation, I get it. You can visit agoodnightforamurder.com to make a one-time contribution as well. Of course, there are ways to support the show for free as well. Follow and subscribe, especially on Apple and Spotify. On Apple, you can leave a rating and review, and on Spotify, you can leave a rating. If you're so inclined, I humbly ask you leave a five-star rating. Those ratings and reviews are what help streaming platforms take the podcast seriously and help it show up to more people so the show can grow and I can feel good about bringing more Victorian true crime to you. Thank you for listening through the announcements, everyone, and now let's get on with the story. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening.
Rogers was born in 1820, likely in the town of Lyme, Connecticut. Though the resources I used mentioned that no birth records for her survive, I'm assuming we know her birthplace likely from census records or possibly a paper trail for her parents, Phoebe and James Rogers. Either way, at some point, the family moved to New York City, where unfortunately her father was killed in a steamboat explosion accident when Mary is about 17. She and her mother pick themselves up, though, and her mother opens a boarding house, and Mary gets a job at a tobacco shop. Now, her job there is to sell cigars and other tobacco products, but it's also to flirt with the customers. And Mary is very good at this. Plus, Mary is very beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that as soon as she appears at John Anderson's tobacco shop, she and his shop become the talk of the city. Men actually come from far and wide just to spend a few moments in her company while she waits on them at the shop. It's often mentioned how notable literary figures like James Fenmore Cooper, Washington Irving, and Fitzgreen Halleck frequented the shop just to spend time with Mary. She was known as the beautiful cigar girl, and she brought in a lot of business to the shop. As such, she was compensated very well, but the rules were definitely look and don't touch when it came to Mary. Now, in October of 1838, when she is 18, Mary goes missing. I'm not sure how long she was missing for before her mother reported it, but her mother apparently found what's described as a suicide note from her daughter and calls the coroner. We don't know the contents of the note, but the coroner reads it and describes it as being written by a person with fixed and unalterable determination to destroy herself. The story was reported on by the New York Sun on October 5th, which was considered a serious paper, not a tabloid journal or anything like that. But by the next day, the Times reported that the Sun story was a hoax and that Mary was fine and had actually only visited friends in Brooklyn. Either way, Mary does resurface and she is fine and she resumes her position as the beautiful cigar girl at Anderson's shop. People are so anxious to see for themselves that Mary is okay that business at the shop booms, and some insinuate that her disappearance was actually just a publicity stunt pulled by Anderson to drum up business. Probably the only person who really knows the truth is Mary herself, and she keeps it to herself. At some point in time while she's working at the shop, she gets engaged to a law clerk named Alfred Cromlin. But her mother pressed her to break off the engagement for some reason, which she does. Maybe because of her young age, we don't really get an explanation, and honestly, it's Mary's business anyway. So by the year 1840, Mary is 20 years old, living the life as the cigar shop it girl when she meets Daniel Payne. Daniel is a cork cutter by trade, and he's renting a room in her mother's boarding house. A short time later, she and Daniel get engaged, but Mary's mother reportedly has misgivings about her relationship with Daniel and was pressing her to break off the engagement with him as well. Then on Sunday, July 25th, Mary tells Daniel and her mother that she's going to visit relatives in New Jersey and she'll be back the next day. That night, there's a series of brutal summer storms that sweep through the area and Mary does not arrive back in New York the next morning as expected. They reason that her travel plans must have been delayed by the storms, but by Monday evening, her mother learns that she never arrived to visit those family members in New Jersey, nor were they even expecting her. So her mother is very concerned by now and places an ad in the Sun newspaper asking for information on her daughter under the premise that it is supposed some accident has befallen her, and the ad runs the next day. Three days later, on July 28, a group of men were out for a stroll in the area of Sybil's Cave. This was kind of a man-made picnic spot, which back then was a scenic riverside walk along the Hudson in Hoboken, New Jersey. So they're out for their walk, and one of them spots something unusual floating in the water. They procure a rowboat and row out to discover it's the body of a woman in tattered clothing. 
Crowds gather on shore and police are called who manage to locate Mary's former fiance, Alfred Cromlin, to try to confirm the identity of the body, which he does positively identify as the remains of Mary Cecilia Rogers. The coroner was called and he noted that her clothing was torn and her body looked as if it had taken a beating. After an examination, he also determined she was not pregnant and, quote, had evidently been a person of chastity and correct habits, meaning she was a virgin, though nowadays we understand their methods were probably not accurate, but this comes up later, so I'll mention it here. The newspapers, the Herald, the Sun, and the Tribune all reported the news of her murder as front page news, and they did not hold back when it came to describing the condition of her body in lurid detail. They also openly speculated on any and all theories as to how she met her demise. They immediately suspected her fiancé, Daniel Payne, because, you know, the husband did it, fiancé, whatever. There were also theories that she had been murdered by someone who was a customer at the cigar shop, and also that she was a victim of gang violence. At the time, there was a public outcry going on regarding the ineptitude and corruption of the city's police force. The criticism was that its practices were archaic and it was severely understaffed for a force that was intended to serve a city of nearly 320,000. The force at the time consisted of only one night watchman, 100 city marshals, 31 constables, and 51 police officers. Despite all the attention from the public, though, very few came forward with any evidence that was actually useful. Some theorized that Mary had actually secretly slipped away to have an abortion. Several penny presses, which were kind of like tabloid or gossip-style publications, linked Mary to a woman who went by the name Madame Restel, who advertised herself as a female physician. She was particularly known for providing abortion services. Now, at this point in time in New York, abortion was illegal only if it was done surgically after what was referred to as the quickening. The quickening refers to when the baby can be felt moving in the womb, and it happens at about four months or so. So even though abortion wasn't explicitly forbidden at this time, it was an extremely hot-button issue, and some theorized that the first time Mary had disappeared three years prior, she was gone exactly about as long as it would take to receive an abortion. This is lent credence to you by the fact that it seems like Mary told her mother and fiancé a fib about going to visit those relatives in New Jersey. Maybe she didn't want anyone to know where she was going. About three or four weeks after the murder, two sons of local tavern owner, Frederica Loss, were out in the woods collecting sassafras when they discovered some crumpled and mildewed women's clothes partially buried in the leaf litter on the forest floor. There was a scarf, a petticoat, and a handkerchief with the initials MR embroidered on it. Mary Rogers? They report this to police, and suddenly, Frederica Loss recalls seeing Mary in her tavern the night she was supposed to have gone missing. She said Mary came in with a tall, dark stranger who she'd never seen before. She said the pair ordered a couple of lemonades, and they left. Later that evening, she heard a scream out in the woods somewhere. She was concerned it was one of her children, but when she went to investigate, she found both of her children safe and sound, right where they should be, so she assumed it must have just been an animal, and she dismissed it at the time. But in hindsight, she is convinced it must have been Mary. Now, for a short while, this skyrockets her to minor celebrity status in the community, and her tavern enjoys very good business for a while. But it does nothing to help solve Mary's case. That fall, Mary's fiancé Daniel has become so grief-stricken and depressed, he goes on a drinking binge where he's seen visiting the site where Mary's body was found. A short while later, he's found dead near the spot in the woods where the boys found Mary's clothing, having committed suicide by overdosing on laudanum. He left a note that read, To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. 
Some took this as an admission of guilt that he had either killed Mary herself, perhaps in a fit of rage as she was threatening to break off their engagement. Others consider it evidence that maybe he had pressed her into having the abortion that accidentally took her life and could no longer deal with the guilt. Now, the year all this goes down, in 1841, American author Edgar Allan Poe, renowned for themes of mystery and macabre in his writing, is living in Philadelphia and recently published a short work of detective fiction called The Murders in the Rue Morgue. The story is set in Paris, and it's a murder mystery that follows fictional detective, Detective Dupine, as he tries to crack the case. The story predates those of Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot and is pretty much considered the earliest example of what would go on to become the entire detective and murder mystery genre. Like everyone else, Poe was intrigued by the murder of Mary Rogers and it inspired him to write a sequel to the murders in Room Morgue based on the true events of the Mary Rogers case that he titled The Mystery of Marie Roget. It's credited with being the very first fictionalized crime novel based on true events. Poe did a deep dive into Mary's case, basing most of his research off of newspaper coverage. He followed the narrative of the case pretty closely, with the exception of relocating the events to the city of Paris to match the first story. Poe stated that, quote, under the pretense of showing how Dupine unraveled the mystery of Marie's assassination, I, in fact, enter into a very rigorous analysis of the real tragedy in New York. Now, the first story was published in Graham's magazine, which he was actually the editor of for a short while. He'd left the publication by 1842 and as such planned to publish The Mystery of Marie Roget in another magazine, The Snowden's Ladies' Companion, in a series of three installments. In October of 1842, right before the third and final installment of Poe's work was to be published, there was a break in Mary Rogers' case. The tyrant owner, Frederica Loss, was accidentally shot by one of her sons and was on her deathbed. And she had a confession to make. She originally said that she saw Mary the night she said to have gone missing with an unknown man, but that's not true. She said she did know the man and that he was a young physician that did actually perform an abortion for Mary, but Mary did not survive the procedure. She said after disposing of the body in the river, her son threw Mary's clothes into a pond and later fished them out and scattered them in the woods. Now, I could find zero analysis of Frederica's claims. I don't know whether people believed her or didn't believe her, but my two cents is I don't think I believe her, not 100% anyway. They very well might have found Mary's body nearby and her clothes in their woods, but beyond that, it just sounds to me like she was trying to capitalize on the publicity the case was generating, so she started making stuff up. I don't know how she had all of those details she mentioned in her deathbed confession unless she's insinuating they literally used her tavern for Mary's procedure, which if you're allowing that at your business, you don't really talk about it. Poe did make some minor changes to the last installment of his story after the revelations from Frederica, and though he leaves the case unsolved, his narrative hints that the main character did die from a botched abortion procedure, though at whose hands is open-ended. Poe did write a third Detective Dupine story that was published in 1845 titled The Purloin Letter, though that one was entirely fictional and out of all three stories, the middle one, based on our girl Mary, despite the sensationalism around the real-life case, was considered to be the weakest written plotline. As for the real Mary Rogers, she was buried in the Jersey City Cemetery, Jersey City, New Jersey, and her case was never solved either. The botched abortion was one of the most widely accepted theories, though what little evidence they did have contradicted that theory. Remember, her body did show signs of a struggle, and if we can trust it, the coroner did note she was a virgin. The reason her fiancé committed suicide was also hotly debated. 
Was it because he pressed her into having the abortion? Did he flat out murder her himself for some reason? Or was he just so heartbroken that he couldn't go on? The theory that she met with gang violence or was attacked by an individual is also still on the table too. At the end of the day, this is unfortunately another case where the truth has been lost to history, but I think any story that Edgar Allan Poe found compelling enough to investigate is worth telling. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder, you can see some illustrations and newspapers printed of Mary, various locations relevant to the case, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforourmurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for Our Murder newsletter. Each month I send out an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for the housekeeper and butler to your Patreons for this episode is another cold case involving a missing woman who turns up in a river under mysterious circumstances. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.